Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so delighted and honored to have each of you joining us today. I'm equally delighted to have on our panel for you this afternoon two brilliant and amazing Murthy Law Firm attorneys. Dana DeLott, who has over 20 years experience in U.S. immigration law, and she's been with the Murthy Law Firm for at least a dozen years and over. And Brian Green, who's uh, also been with the Murthy Law Firm for several years now, seven or eight years, and has over 15 years immigration experience as an attorney um, doing a lot of the complex litigation and other matters. So between the three of us, we really hope to touch upon several issues. Our topic for today, as you probably already know, is additional strategies for visa approvals. This is part two of our series on trying to help and educate and empower you as employers in the process. Um, in our part one, we had actually touched upon, you know, changes to the U.S. visa fees, how to choose between one's home country and going to what we call TCN or third country national uh, for consular processing to, for example, Canada or Mexico, what consular officers look for from first-time H-1B visa applicants, and certain commonly asked visa interview questions, uh, which you as the employer and your employees, whether on H-1B or L-1B, should be prepared to answer for consular officers anywhere applying at any consulate, uh, U.S. consulate around the world, as well as the current trends in H-1 visa interviews and adjudications. Today, our focus will be on h 1B related issues for IT consulting companies and in-house um, projects probably, but we're really going to try to focus on areas that we've seen problems. And even though we talk about it in the context of IT consulting companies, many of you, even large companies, companies that aren't necessarily consulting companies are finding you're getting more RFEs, more denials. And so it's extremely helpful to be aware of the latest trends and what's going on. Obviously, uh, in addition to everything we're sharing with you today, we have the world's most popular legal website, murthy.com, that continues to have cutting-edge, valuable, up-to-date information 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all for your help and benefit. And obviously, it's always free of charge. It's a free service for our clients to take advantage of. Some of you had actually asked us over the years and even recently about whether anybody from the Muti law firm attends interviews at consulates. And we have had, uh, we have, I've actually gone very regularly across the uh, uh, several consulates in the world. I've traveled to different consular offices, but most recently we were there uh, in the end of 2013 in, in all of the three cons, in all of the three major consulates in India. Well, we went to Mumbai. Uh, I went, Sheila Murthy. Uh, to Mumbai, Chennai, and Hyderabad, where I was privileged to meet with the chief of the non-immigrant visa section on behalf of 
uh, corporate clients. Sometimes it's in the plural, sometimes it's singular, that will request us, obviously for a fee, to go and present their concerns, questions, and clear up and establish their bona fides and clear up any potential negatives that may be on their files at consulates around the world. So we are certainly available to do that. In fact, I'm planning to travel to India again. Like we go several times a year, but this time uh, in, 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 in early to mid-January to schedule a time uh, with the chief of the non-immigrant visa section in Chennai, India, because they are still one of the major H-1B consular processing posts in the world. So let's now jump with start with the crux of the issue. So can you give, provide us an overview, Brian, of what are the sorts of special issues that we find with IT consulting companies and consultants, and what are the trends we're seeing that, that companies or employers can be prepared for? Sure, Sheila. I think it's important to have a, a overview or a big picture view of this, and that is that especially with IT consulting companies, and it's a problem with any employer that you want to retain talent. If someone has a visa and they either a new hire or they've been with the company a long time, eventually they're going to want to travel. And if you're talking about someone who's not a U.S. worker, they're not a green card holder, they don't have an EAD card or U.S. citizen, they're going to have to go to the consulate eventually. So having your company set up in a good situation where you have good uh, practices, you know, you don't, you're avoiding payroll issues, you're avoiding moving people from uh, one workstate to another workstate without LCAs. If you avoid some of these common problems that we see, then you can either have your employees have a good experience at the consulate and come back quickly and not have a disruption at that end client. Or if there is going to be a 221G, you're trying to shrink that amount of time so there's less disruption with your customers. So I think we can kind of categorize it into a couple of different um, groups, you have your long-term employees. They may already be married. They have you know, spouse, children. There's H-4s involved. And you also have your, your newer employees that are on H-1B. They may have changed status, and they may not have left the, the U.S. You know, they came here on F-1 status. They got their OPT time. Those people may want to go home rather quickly because it's now time for them to get married. They've been away a long time. They missed a wedding or two. And then you also may have people that are with you on OPT or CPT, and they may have trouble where they get the H-1B approved, and we're happy for that, but their change of status might be denied. They may have to leave the country very quickly, and they can't come back to work with you until they get that H-1B. So all of your employees, and especially IT consulting companies, all of these employees are going to need to go through the consulate at some point. So we want to help you avoid these problems that we're going to talk about now. Sounds great. So you're saying once, even if the H-1 petition is approved by the USCIS, if the person's extension of status or change of status with the I-94 card is not attached to that approval notice, the petition is approved, but their visa stamp and the eligibility to work is cannot start, so they would have to leave the country, apply for the visa stamp at the consulate, and then re-enter the U.S. with H-1B or L-1 status at the airport or port of entry. Very good. Okay, thank you for that quick overview. Dana, if I can now jump to you. So why is it important for the H-1B employer that may be a consulting company to actually have to provide, for example, the end client letter or the client end client contract, et cetera? Well, it's important because the consulates and embassies, when people are applying for visas, they want to see that document. But as we all know, you don't always have an end client letter in each case. If, if everyone had them, all of our lives would be much easier. <laughs> um, so 
where you don't have one, um, because everyone always asks, what do I do? I don't have a letter. Is my visa going to get denied? And, and certainly it creates more problems, but it isn't impossible. So our starting point with that is always that, okay, the H-1 got approved somehow without the letter, and the same elements have to be uh, proven in order to, to the USAS in order to get that approved. So somehow there's already some documentation in there about who is the end client, what are you going to be doing there, and there should be some documentation tying it to, to the end client. Uh, you know, typical things, and you, we work with our clients to, to develop these alternatives, uh, see what they can get. You know, statements of work, email exchanges, project plans, status reports, and the like, and typically an email from the end client that says, hey, we don't give end client letters. Um, so where those don't exist, again, you've got to rely on these alternatives and get as much of it as you possibly can. And I think that our big warning there is that whatever you do, don't get tempted and make sure that your employees aren't tempted to produce either fake letters or unauthorized letters. So what's an unauthorized letter? Unauthorized letters typically come from managers because people work with their, you know, their their immediate supervisors. They get to be a little friendly and the immediate supervisors don't always understand the fully the what the problem is on the part of the end clients in giving these letters. Frankly, I don't always understand the problem, but the fact is it's their company policy. Um, so these managers will try to be helpful, and they'll often give perfectly accurate letters verifying that the person is doing such and such a job at such and such a location, but they weren't authorized. And the consulates know. They know what those letters are supposed to look like and that they typically come from HR and certain channels. And they also know, just like we do, that certain large USN clients don't give the letters. So when they see them, what they'll typically do is send it back uh, for uh, verification, Kentucky, Kentucky Consular Center, and double check that that letter was authorized. And when the end client finds out that the manager issued something they weren't supposed to issue, somebody's going to lose their job, and that visa is going to get denied, and that case is going to just hmm. go away. And there's a major risk of a fraud finding because you're submitting, again, unauthorized documents. Um, yeah, I, I see the point, and I think it's a valid point. I think it's better to be careful. But to me, an unauthorized letter... Maybe that's not fraud. Yeah, the fake it's letters, not fraud. The fake letters, definitely yeah. fraud. An unauthorized letter, innocent mistake, I would certainly Could, argue that that's right. not fraud. One, it's not fraud. And two, it might actually work because if they check with the head of HR, the head of HR will at least agree that, yes, we have this manager. They're not happy that the manager violated mm -hmm. the rule and issued the letter. But, yes, we have the manager and, yes, this person worked, but this person had no darn business in issuing that letter. Well, guess what? We just proved our point which is that the person worked. Now, the ideal situation is obviously to go through proper channels and not try to find a backdoor because that can be a little annoying for everybody involved, especially for the government that's trying to verify it on a tight budget with, um, with you know, having to double-check things, as we just talked about, the Kentucky, Kentucky Consular Center having to verify information. And when they go to the HR, the HR says, oh, no, we never issue letters, which can cause problems. Brian, can I come back to you? Sure. So there's been benching issues, as we've always heard, which happens all the time because projects get over, there's a gap. And uh, how does this end up causing trouble 
for the H-1 or L-1 visa applicant at the consulate abroad? I think we saw this more frequently, right, either during the, the Great Recession or slightly afterwards because there's a little bit of a lag. Someone might go for that visa, you know, after they've extended their H-1B after the first three years. And, and what the consulate will, would say is, oh, let me see the W-2s, let me see your payroll statements. And if the consular officer sees, they, they get a copy of the LCA through the PIM session, session the PIMS system, which Dana's going to talk about a little bit later on, and if they compare the LCA to what the wages are on the payroll, they can see that there's there's a gap or that there's missing payments. So what has happened in the past was, one, it could cause a, a DOL referral or uh, to the U.S. Department of Labor where a wage and hour division would do an investigation. But for the individual, say this person is just starting for the company and they go in for the visa interview they may find out for the first time, hey, and the consular officer might say, do you know that your company was investigated and had some some benching issues? They weren't paying the workers properly. That has caused sort of a ripple effect, and over time it's sort of gone away a bit. But again, as if people are taking vacations, if the company's not documenting things correctly, it may look like benching and not really be benching. So I think the the, the takeaway is, if you are paying your wages correctly and documenting them correctly, that's the best protection. If your company had a problem and had some benching and paid workers back, you may want to have you know a letter that memorializes that. You may want to have Department of Labor give you a receipt. That way you could have the worker prepared ahead of time and they could have some evidence to give to the consul officer. If that worker was not paid properly, you could pay them back. Or if there was a vacation that wasn't documented, you can document that now and date it now. And these things can all be ready. I wouldn't bring it up at the interview. I wouldn't have the worker explain this because it's going to probably turn into a 221G. But the worker can be ready with some documentation showing, no, the company's paying correctly now. Okay. Very good. So I know you, Brian, just referred to the PIMS. Uh, what exactly is the PIMS, Dana, and why is it important for the employers on this conference call to understand what it means. PIMS is, it stands for the Petition Information Management System, which is basically a centralized system um, by the Department of State uh, that contains all of the proof of the approvals and related information about the approved H-1 petitions. So the we no longer rely on original documents being uh, strictly hand-carried to the, to the consulates. Uh, people still have to show up with their original approvals and, uh, of course, original documents, but that isn't the only thing that they're going to look at. And also, there's, there is language on those approval notices that says something about filing, I think, an I-824 to get information over to the consulate. That, ignore that. It's, the information is in the PIM system, which, again, is centralized uh, system by the Department of State with all of the H-1 information in there. Um, so, Again, you show, still show up with your original approvals, but the case isn't going to go forward unless everything is properly in PIMS. And we don't have as many problems with delays created by PIMS as we did uh, a few years ago. But in case it isn't updated, it normally will take at least, let's say, two to three days for that system to be updated with all the information on new petitions. And you can't really um, expedite that uh, or at least according to the website for um, New Delhi and Mumbai. And, and it pretty much usually does resolve itself uh, internally through the consulate. And if it if PIMS isn't updated, if the system hasn't been updated before the interview, the 
consular officer will issue a 221G and the applicant will just have to wait a little bit until um, this is all updated, but hopefully not more than a week or so. And during that time, the consulate will take the steps to get everything clarified so the case can move forward. Okay, good. Well, and I'm glad to hear that it's not being as much of a problem as it has been in years past, but it's always helpful to understand that sometimes if the consular officer just mentions to your H-1B or L-1 employee, um, look, there's a PIMS delay that they know, understand, and you understand what exactly it means. So the most common soft denials or hard denials, as we call them, the 221Gs, which many of us are familiar with for administrative processing delays, what exactly happens? Why is it issued? And are there ways to expedite the process, Brian? Sure. A 221G is, as you described it, Sheila, it's a soft denial. It means that they can't approve the visa at this point, but they can approve it for up to one year from the date of the issuance of the 221G. So if there's a, a date at the top, and hopefully there's a date, and hopefully there's also a case number, that you have one year of time to resolve it. And obviously, you don't want to wait that long. So 221G is a way for the consular officer to either ask for information, or sometimes you just see those 221Gs say administrative processing. And I know everyone hates that because it's such a generic term. You don't know what it means. It could be that they're going to you know, investigate some kind of detail. They might have the KCC, as Dana said, call up the end client and verify that the project is there, but they need more time. And the way to expedite it is to either have the information ready during the interview. I think the best advice is to do a really great job with the H-1B petition in April or whenever you're filing it because through the PIM system, the consular officer gets to see everything that USCIS sees. If you have done a really great job and described everything in great detail, then the consular officer may have a lower chance of issuing the 221G. But if it happens, you have to deal with it. Um, you can speed it up by having the documents ready to give over to the uh, employee. You can hire a fantastic law firm like Murthy Law Firm. We can put together a good package for you explaining with a cover letter to the officer, here's what you need and this is why you should approve the visa. But about two to ten weeks And sometimes time, we have personal email connections and contacts with them when needed to try to nudge them. Yeah, yeah, especially whenever we worked with the consuls before, spoken on panels with them, we uh, may have direct email addresses to some of the chiefs. But the idea is it's about two to ten weeks from the time that those documents reach the Team Stanley or other contractor that works with the consuls' embassies. And in that two, or ten week, two to ten weeks, they should be able to resolve the problem. But I know that we've all seen some 221Gs that take longer. I think 221G can almost be like 214B where they don't want to approve the visa and they just sort of throw it out there and don't act on the case. And in those rare cases, we actually have filed lawsuits to challenge the Department of State and say you can't let this visa just die by letting it go for one full year. But that's really the exception. Hmm. I, I also think with that, while some of it is unavoidable because they're going to want to do some extra background checks or whatever, the problem is that you just aren't going to be able to get around. In addition to a well-prepared H-1 petition, you want to have a well-prepared visa applicant. And they should be familiar with what's in their file and also the types of questions that they're likely to be asked so that they are not stumbling through. They you know, appear credible and intelligent and can speak about their employer and their job and all the rest of the details that they need to be familiar with. In, in layman's terms, tell a consul officer who's never done IT consulting, what are you going to do at company A? 
And yeah. the and the general rules that Dana just referred to and mentioned, which is look decent, talk decent, be professional, be polite. Uh, there are a lot of things we don't say, but I tell people those are general rules that apply in every interview. When you go for a job, you don't want to look like you just, you know, are wearing your jeans and sl casual slippers. You want to look professional. Do that. Try to do that, even if it's 110 degrees in smoldering hot Chennai, India at times. Because I think it give you you want to project a certain professional image. Now we've had questions over the years from employers who say, "Well, we had back wage problems before, or even we were going through a, a little bit of a tough financial patch, so we had bent some of our employees, but now we've paid all their back wages, uh, even though they were previously benched. Uh, you know, will this be an issue at the visa interview?" And what we've generally said is. If the company had previously been ordered by the U.S. Department of Labor to pay back wages and those payments have all been fulfilled and made, then it's a wise idea for the H-1 or L-1 visa applicant, the employee, to carry a copy of the Department of Labor receipt or the letter noting that back wages have been paid in full and the employer is no longer considered in violation of the Department of Labor laws. It may also help an employee who was paid back wages and who's now seeking the visa stamp or for employees who were not affected by the back wage issue, but who want to avoid the 221G issue while they're at the consulate to check with the Department of Labor to see if there are any back wage issues that could still be unresolved. But to be really safe, if the issue of back wages of the company's history of payroll does not come up, the consular officer doesn't bring it up, don't volunteer and show any information by showing that, well, now the employer's record is cleaned up because my philosophy in all of this is don't ever over-volunteer, don't be so naive and goody-goody and volunteer and open a Pandora's box when one is not required. And she, I think sometimes employers might be hesitant to tell a new employee that they had this problem two or three years ago. But if you have a great project and the person's been on there on OPT at this project for 20 months, they want them back. You might be pragmatic to tell the employee, hey, we had this problem. You know, Here's a copy of the letter from Department of Labor saying that this case is closed. Everything's been paid in full. I don't think you lose any credibility that way, but you might get the worker back a lot faster. Okay, good. So I'm sure many of us have, unfortunately, at least we get normally the, the cases from other firms as well, both law firms and employers, where what they consider to be a simple, either an extension of status of an H-1B or maybe a change of status from F-1, et cetera, um, was denied after the I-94, prior I-94 card had expired. So the petition was filed, everything was done right, maybe, or maybe not, but the I-94 has now expired. The petition is now denied, either the extension or the change, and the employee it says, well, I can't leave on the day I get the denial decision because I can't even buy an airline ticket. I mean, it's just impractical. You have loose ends to tie up. Um, so what kind of complications or problems or delays will it cause this person? And how will it affect the person's visa application? And if I can come to you, Dana. And yes, it, the complications depend mostly on the duration of the particular problem and, and being out of status or unlawfully present in the U.S. And as many people know, you can create a legal bar to reentry if a person is unlawfully present for more than 180 days, three-year bar that goes up to 10 if you're unlawfully present for, for a year or more. 
But usually that's not what we're talking about. That's it, Usually this is, I got a denial, and like Sheila said, I couldn't get it. You know, unless you're Canadian or Mexican, you're not going to be able to get out of here the same day. And, you know, you don't even get it in the mail on the exact same day. So it always there's always a little lag time. And I think that's why we generally don't find that people are denied their visas simply because there's a short, unavoidable lag time between the denial and when they were able to get a ticket. But the key is short, unavoidable. So you need to make sure that you answer all the questions accurately on the visa application. It does ask questions about unlawful present and, and unlawful presence and um, status violations. Just make sure you answer all that cor- correctly. Get some advice about the definition of unlawful presence to make sure that you don't admit to something you don't have to. And answer the questions from the consular officer correctly. And just get out of the U.S. in a pretty short, reasonable time, which is usually something like 30 days. Takes a couple weeks to get a ticket and pack your bags and get some advice on what you're supposed to do before you go. We don't usually see that that's a problem. Beyond that, it gets a little hard to explain. I completely understand and agree, and I think that's very wise counsel to suggest to employers not to panic. And I tell people, if you're filing a new petition or getting things ready within that 30 days while you're trying to buy the ticket and do your packing, get your new petition paperwork filed if, nece- if needed. Right. Uh, set it up so you, you set it up so that you can hopefully come, person can hopefully come back. Right. And in some of these cases, they have a petition approval, but not 994. So they're already ready to, to just come go back. and apply they for the They just visa. need to go. Correct. Okay. So the other issue that some of you may have been familiar or at least heard of, hopefully, from time to time is something called TAL, the Technology Alert List, where if the employer or the individual, the H1 employee or the L1 employee was involved or associated insensitive projects under the technology alert list or working with the U.S. government projects, then one could expect something called an SAO or a security advisory opinion that the U.S. consular officer will request to ensure that they are allowed to issue the visa for the visa applicant. So it's better for you as an employer to be aware and be to be prepared what are the types of case situations that your employee could get stuck because you think your employee is going out of the country for two weeks and unfortunately the employee is now stuck for two or three months? When does this happen and why does it happen? So generally, there are associated delays either in the case of a name hit where the person's name is very closely matching with a potential terrorist or somebody in a gray area zone or the birth date of that person is closely matching along with a name match. And some applicants may also have to uh, obtain the um, SAO, the security advisory opinion that I just referred to, because either they are known, they are from a country which is known to have nuclear capability. And unfortunately, countries like India and China, Pakistan and Russia fall into that category. But also delays may simply occur for those who have a fantastic stellar stellar reputation, no problems, no name check, but who have studied and have a background either working with technology and fields that we often see commonly are like nuclear technology, rocket systems, unmanned air vehicles, which we've been hearing in the news recently, you know, uh, navigation, flight control, very common. I did my master's in chemical engineering. Why am I stuck? Well, guess what? Chemical engineering is something that you could abuse or misuse. They call it the dual-use technologies because they're good uses and bad uses. And so chemical biotechnology and biomedical engineering are those, remote sensing, 
advanced computer, microelectronic technology, potential problems, materials technology, information security systems, laser and directed energy systems, uh, robotics, and even urban planning, believe it or not. And we've seen and heard of cases over the years where these are potential problems. And the, the, um, then the consular officer has to obtain the relevant visa advisory opinion. When sometimes you might hear the, the officer say from your employee, they need to get a visa donkey or a visa condor. You don't have to think that they're calling us donkeys or anything like that. But it's a slang. It's a common use for the different type of advisory opinion based on the kind of potential problem to get a visa condor, a visa donkey, a visa eagle, a visa mantis, etc. And it's most common in the technology sector now for the visa mantis, which is more the technology and commerce related type of security opinion. So with that, Brian, let's now jump and change gears. What are the kinds of additional documents that the employer would need to provide to the visa applicant to ensure that the case, the visa is actually likely to get issued. Yeah, just based on on history and what consular has what consular officers have asked for in two two one Gs, it's a good idea to have the consultant carry with them copies of the corporate incorporation documents, whether it's you know a company that's incorporated in Delaware, if it's a you know LLC, if it's a you know a partnership, have them carry copies of those documents, a notarized list of the current employees certified tax returns from the company and I understand that you might not you might want to be a little bit hesitant about that you can always seal those up in a sealed envelope and, and you could write you know open by consular officer only on the on the seal there and destroy yeah, destroy afterwards uh, bank statements if you're comfortable giving those same you could seal those as well and employment employment quarterly wage reports for all the different states where your workers are working in and it, it may sound strange to give this to one worker because hey this worker is in California why would you know North Carolina taxes matter well the consular officers want to make sure that the um, the employers are following the rules and not violating the H-1B program, if you give the worker these documents up front, if the officer starts to ask for them or just starts writing out the 221G and hands it over, if the con- if the consultant, the employee, reads the 221G, says, I have it right here, they can give it over, and maybe that visa just gets issued that day. If the consular officer is looking for one thing and that employee has it, they don't want to go through the process again. They have a it's a high volume job to be a consular officer. So these are basics, and they may save your worker being outside the country for two, four, six, eight weeks. So it's it's a good idea, and the security can be maintained as Sheila suggested. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brian. Before I jump to the next question, I always, around 30 minutes, notify all of our people that since we try to make most of these teleconferences for you between 30 and 45 minutes. We are mindful of the time, and we will absolutely wrap up in within less than five to 10 minutes, hopefully. But the idea is to empower you, to educate you, to m- help you uh, be more effective in your position uh, as HR manager, HR director, as a company president, owner, et cetera, uh, or just the person doing immigration for a much larger entity to understand the the, the, the the arena in which we're all working. So what if the employee was previously on an H-4 or an L-2 status, had filed a change of status within the U.S., now has a new uh, approval for, let's say, an H-1B status? But for whatever reason, because the project hasn't started, the person wasn't able to join, et cetera, person has not started working in that new H-1B position, could this pose any kind of a problem if the person later were to try and apply for a visa, Dana? 
It could be a problem. And, you know, often I just ask people, you know, picture it. What if you were the consular officer? Would you give a visa in this type of situation? And really depends on how much lag time we're talking about. But if an employer files an H-1 and petition and says that there's a job starting on October 1, and that case gets approved, there is supposed to be a job on October 1. And I know that the Department of Labor has a 60-day thing for, for starting people to get paid and all of that, but that's kind of an enforcement issue. The fact is, again, some employers said that there is a job on October 1. So if that job doesn't start on October 1 and a person shows up to apply for a visa in November, December, or January... Or worse, after six or months. Or after six months. I mean, first of all, we have a status issue and a wage issue. But also, how do you explain that? And if it was your job to be the consular officer, what explanation would be good enough for you? I don't know. I, I think I'm pretty nice and flexible, and I see things from this, this side of the road. But I'm not so sure that I'd issue a visa if it was approved in October and somebody showed up in six months, January, February, six months later, and said, now I want to start. During a five-minute interview. Trying During to explain a five-minute minute interview. interview. I, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that I'd get... You know, well, October approved. six months later would be April, but... but. <laughs> well, I've got to count on my fingers. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's just kind of common sense. There's supposed to be a job there. They can't give a visa unless they are convinced that there's legitimately a job there. The best way to prove that there's really a job there from the employer side that the employee is going to do is to have them working and doing the job and getting and being paid for it. Okay, good. So what if the visa application, the visa itself is denied? What happens? Is there a very strong likelihood that the petition itself is revoked? Can the employer or the employee try to salvage it at that point? Right. It's not autom- The petition isn't automatically revoked. And of course, there can be a number of reasons why that petition might be denied that or why the visa application might be denied. That, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the petition. But assuming it's denied because they're is some belief that there is something wrong and the petition shouldn't have been approved, then the consular officer, the Department of State, can't revoke it. It wasn't their approval. What they do is send it back with their notes and recommendations for, rec- for revocation to the USCIS. And then at some point, the USCIS receives that file and reviews it. And if they tend to agree with the consulate, they will send the employer a notice of intent to revoke, which essentially says, this is all the bad stuff that we found out or that the consulate found out about your case. Please address these things. Otherwise, we're going to revoke uh, the petition. And then the employer gets to argue back. The problem with that process is that it's often quite slow. It's a little bit of who's got the file. So we do have some strategies that we use to try to um, essentially work around that a little bit with some potentially refiling, uh, this, that, and the other, the, rather than simply waiting and trying to chase after that file between two different government because agencies. Because it could take months or years, as Dana just it takes forever. And so an employer says, look, I can't wait a year or two for the revocation. The USCIS then sends you a letter and then follows up. So is there anything that you can do faster? And we've tried and we've been successful with certain creative strategies we've and come up with. And whatever we come up with, the rest of the law firms and lawyers across the country tend to kind of borrow or steal. But I guess, what do they say? Imitation... Is a very uh, is, is 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 another word for uh, highest form of flattery. Is the highest form of flattery. Thank you, thank you, Brian. Okay, so Brian, let me come to you. So, what happens if there is a discrepancy between the wages that are paid and what was listed on the 
H-1B petition or the LCA and or the LCA, could this pose a potential problem it will, it will, Sheila. If, if the consular officer sees this, it's a it's a red flag for them. They're trained to issue 221G and ask for information and, and maybe make that referral to the Department of Labor. From my point of view, I think this is the flip side of having your employee be prepared for the consular interview, for the visa interview. You as the employer need to be prepared as well. It's not just putting together a, a packet of papers and sending the person off to Chennai or Hyderabad. You, you probably want to check this in every case when someone's going overseas. These are valuable employees, as we said. The idea is look at the LCA and look at every wage pay stub, not what's the W-2 at the end of the year. Look at every pay stub and see, was that person paid the pro rata amount of their salary or their hourly wages? And at this point, you probably want to involve an attorney. If there is any kind of discrepancy, as Sheila said, have an attorney look at it. We're happy to look at it for you. And what we can do is we can talk to you and say, hey, what? why was you know Venki not paid for these two weeks? Oh, he got married. That's great. Do you have any documentation? Well, we don't. You need to have him sign something saying, I knew when I left I was not going to be paid for those two weeks, and I traveled at my own will back to my home country to get married, and I have you know wedding announcements. If you document this properly, you can reassure the consular officer that this is not a problem at all, and they will issue the visa. If there's no documentation to show, you're going to get the 221G and you have a delay. So I think preparation here is worth a lot. And and, and, and while I think two weeks may be not as common for the employer not to pay, but if someone says, I know I get two weeks paid time off in a year, but I want to go home for a month or two months, and if the employer says, okay, we're in between projects, fine, so you pay them for two weeks, but not for the rest of the one and a half months. And a month is missing. And a month is missing, then you need the proof. So I think those are all excellent points. As you can see from this sample and the discussion that Dana Bryan and I have had, these are just some of the examples of the kinds of situations and problems that your H-1 or L-1 employees will run run across in trying to obtain the visa stamp at the U.S. consulate. And of course, for you not having your valuable employees means loss of profits, headache and tension for your, for your relationship with your end client or your mid-vendor client, etc., so if we have a really tough climate in U.S. immigration law, first of all, we hardly about less than half, maybe a third of the cases even get selected under the H-1B random lottery selection program for cap subject cases. Once they're selected, the next hurdle is to obtain the H-1B petition approval within, with the USCIs right here in the U.S. And assuming one is lucky enough, you as the employer obtains that approval, you get the case selected in the lottery and you obtain the petition approval, now you're employee has to go trudge halfway across the world probably or to some consulate outside of the United States to obtain the H-1 visa stamp in the passport uh, at the consulate and deal deal with all of these tricky uh, slippery slope kind of issues that Dana, Brian and I have just discussed with you. And finally, even after the H-1 visa stamp is issued, the Customs and Border Protection CBP at the port of entry uh, has one last opportunity to review and uh, revisit Uh, whether the person should be allowed granted entry into the United States. It's obvious that for this extremely complex uh, way of working that you obviously need a very, very strong legal team behind you. And who else would be better in the whole world than the amazing legal team at the Murthy Law Firm, the world's most popular legal website, murthy.com. And I also, again, wanted to remind those who may have signed up earlier for the conference call and missed it in the first one or two minutes that I will be traveling in January 2015 next month to the U.S. consulate in Chennai, India, and would be willing to represent companies or individuals who need help 
uh, in discussing their situation or trying to lay down the framework for that. On behalf of Dana DeLott, Brian Green, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm family and team here, we look forward to continuing to help you and your business as you continue to not just survive but thrive in this environment in obtaining H1, L1s, and other approvals. We also take this opportunity to wish you and all your loved ones a wonderful and happy holiday season and best wishes for the new year. Take care. Thank you.